I said. Amen. Amen. Um, question. Anybody uh, ever seen the classic film Jaws? Anybody seen that movie? A lot of people have seen Jaws. It's an old film, but it's like, it's a classic. If you haven't seen it, I think I can recommend it. It's been a while since I saw it, but, uh, but it's a classic. It's one of those films that you, you just watch and it's talked about for years. It's always in the AFI, you know, top 100 films. It's just, just an all, it's just an all-time classic. A film that you probably did not see um, was Jaws 2. Uh, this is the sequel to Jaws. And um, I just, you know, I just, I personally believe, and I think most of the world believes, Jaws 2, the sequel, just did not live up to the original. Amen, somebody? Or, or maybe you haven't seen it, so you don't even know. Just to sh let me assure you. Um, another great classic, of course, is Karate Kid. Some of these films that people have seen. Um, you know, and, and, and <laughs> wow, wax on, wax off here, people. Uh, a film that you probably didn't see is Karate Kid 2. A film that, <laughs> that didn't quite, m some people saw it, didn't quite live up to the original. Um, if you're into comedy, you may have seen uh, Big Mama's House. I don't know if you have. I'm, I'm not recommending it. I'm just saying um, a film that you probably haven't and probably shouldn't see is Big Mama's House 2. Um, because why? Because the sequel didn't live up to the original. Okay, you can take, take that down. Last week, we began to explore the picture of the original church in the mind of Jesus. We began to explore what the original church, what the early church, what the vision of the church, according to Jesus, was supposed to be. And we began to compare and contrast, determine to determine whether or not the church in its current form across the United States especially, is living up as a sequel to the original. And what we discovered last week is that in some spots, yes, but there are large swaths of the world and, 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 and our country where the sequel, the version of the church today in 2023, is not quite living up to the original church that was formed in 33 AD. And what we want to do as a church is we want to look at the original and we want to say, man, we want to be like them. We want the sequel, the version of the church today, to be like the original church as it was conceived of by Christ and as it was launched and as it was lived in the very early part of the Christian faith. So what did the original church look like? We, we covered this last week, but I'll briefly summarize it. The original church at its inception was multi-ethnic, multi-generational, and composed of both men and women. It was, it was a multi-generational, multi-ethnic congregation, and it was composed of both men and women. How do we know that? And how do we know whether that mattered? And how do we know whether that was even a priority? We know that because there, there is a written record of the day the church launched. The actual reality of what happened the day it launched. And what happened on the day it launched is that 120 gather, followers of Jesus gathered together. There were only 120 of them at that point. This is about 50 days after the resurrection and, and the ascension of Jesus. It was during a feast they called Pentecost. And this 120 followers of Jesus gathered together and they prayed. And the very first act that the Holy Spirit did in the life of the church was to empower the 120 followers of Jesus to be able to proclaim the gospel in the languages of people from all over the planet. That was the first act of the Holy Spirit. Look at this in Acts chapter 2, verse 5. This is a snapshot of the very first day 
of the, of the launch of the church. Of the church. It says this, uh, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. I mean, every nation. If you go look at Acts chapter 2, it just starts to list all the nations. Nations I've never heard of. Just nation after nation. Uh, every nation under heaven was gathered. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language, their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these people who are speaking Galileans? You got to know this about Galilee. Galilee is like a little speck. It's just like a little part of right north of the Sea of Galilee. And it's just little country villages and little country towns. And what, and what these um, people from all over the world are saying is, how are these Galileans, these country folk from little towns and villages who've never even been to, you know, rabbinic school or, or certainly haven't learned, uh, you know, all of the languages of the world, how are they speaking in uh, our own native language? Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans, then how is it that we hear them in our own native language? So, what we see from this is that the very first act of the Holy Spirit was to proclaim the gospel through the 120 followers of Jesus in the languages of people from all over the world. That indicates to me that the, that the priority of the Holy Spirit would be that the church of Jesus would be a multi-ethnic congregation. It would be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Are you with me this morning? It would be everybody. So that's the first thing that happened. What's the next thing? You just go down a few verses. And when people are, are, are asking, like, what is this? What's going on? Peter tells them what's going on. And he quotes the prophet Joel. He says this in verse 17. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. What does that tell me? That tells me that the church was multi-generational and that God wanted it that way. It tells me that they are, the, the Holy Spirit is specifically saying old and young. I'm calling them all. I'm not reserving this for one generation or for another generation. I want all generations, old, old, medium, and young. I want all of them coming together um, to, to proclaim the gospel and to be part of this church. What about the third component that I talked about, the male and female? If you look at the very next sentence, the very next breath that Peter says, he says, uh, quoting Joel, even on my servants, he says, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. So what's amazing to me is that in the book of Acts, in the description of the launch of the church, it is clear from day one that the heartbeat of God is that his church would be multi-ethnic, multi-generational and composed of both men and women. That's the, that's the heartbeat of God. That's the heartbeat of of, of what the Lord wants and what Christ imagined for his church. But then it even goes deeper than that. Um, and, and there are some other attributes of the church that I want us to explore today. Um, I, I, I wrote some of this out last week, but I'm going to share it with you again. The original church was a vibrant and growing community of spirit-filled believers who eagerly and quickly spread the truth of the gospel and the love of Christ around the globe. Now, this is hard to fathom. For us, because the original church was only 120 people, 120 people. That's not a, that's not a large group of people. 120 people had gathered within two months after the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, about 50 days afterwards on this day, on the, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter proclaimed the truth of the gospel and people heard the truth of the gospel proclaimed in their own language, the scripture says that 3000 were added to their number daily. That day. So, 3, 000, so the church went from 120 to 3,000. And then if you go to Acts chapter 4, 
um, uh, Peter and John go into the temple and they, they heal a, a man who's been lame since life. And the scripture says that the church grew to about 5,000 on that day. And if you look at any historian or sociologist of religion and their research, you, you start to discover that the church of Jesus began to just grow exponentially. By around uh, 300 AD, um, it, it's believed that, you know, estimated that the church had grown to about 6 million. And by 350 AD, the church had grown to about over 30 million people. Today, people who call themselves Christians, there are about 2.2 billion people who say, this is, this is, I'm a follower of Jesus. Now, maybe some of them are, and maybe some of them aren't, but there are 2.2 billion people on the planet right now who say, I'm a follower of Jesus. And this grew from 120 people. Like, it's absolutely mind-blowing what was happening in the early church. So it was... It was multi-ethnic, it was multi-generational, it was both men and women, and it was expanding and growing like crazy, right? So, if we compare and contrast, how is the, the version of the church today around the United States, how is it different from the original church? I'm going to give you four ways. Number one, around the world, it's the, especially in the United States, the church is shrinking, it's not growing. The church is shrinking, it's not growing. I, I showed you a chart last week, and I won't go back into all that. But I invite you, if you didn't see that message, go back and look at the research. Uh, in the United States, about 47% of people say that they're members of a church. That's down from 70% in 2000. So, so that's not like the early church, right? Number two, it's, the church is not reaching young people, by and large. If you look at the data on this, you see that people over 60 are most likely to attend church. People in their 50s are a little less likely. People in their 40s, a little less likely still. People in their 30s, a little less likely. And the lowest group, the lowest attendance is the, is the demographic of people 18 to 29. So it's not reaching young people like, like the church was designed to do. So that's not part of the design. God, God imagined it differently. The original was different. It was old and young. Uh, number three is, by and large, the church in the United States is mono-ethnic, meaning that, by and large, if you go into an average church on a Sunday morning, you, you're, there'll only be one ethnic group in that church, mostly. Um, and, and thank God that that's actually changing. Um, but that's not the design that God had. It, it's, it's clear from the day of Pentecost that, this, that we were supposed to be family across all ethnicities, cultures, tribes, tongues, languages, races, whatever you want to call it. We, we were supposed to be family. That was the original design. And then number four is that it's not reaching men. So 61% in, in the United States, about 61% of church attenders, attendees are female and only 39% are males. So, so this is a problem, right? And, and I, I sort of outlined that problem for you um, last week. But the problem is, is that the sequel is not living up to the original. The sequel of the church, the version of the church in 2023 is not looking like and doing and behaving like and acting like and experiencing what the early church experienced. And here's one thing I know about you because I know that it's true about me and I know that it's true about you. You're not happy with that. You don't want to be a part of a dying religious tradition. You want to be a part of a movement of God. You want to be a part of a movement that is of, of people that are filled with the power of the Spirit, that love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, that are reaching the community, that are serving each other, that are loving one another, that are caring, that are growing in the Lord, that are being transformed by the power of the Spirit, that are, that are transforming relationships and transforming communities. You want to be a part of the real thing, and so do I. I, I don't want to be a part 
of a religious institution. I want to be a part of the body of Christ, which is a living organism that is spreading out and, and touching people and transforming the world. That's what I want to be a part of. That's what you want to be a part of. That's why we're here. That's what we long for. So then the question has to be, how do we do that? Well, here's one thing that we know, which is fascinating. The thing that you want, the thing that I want, the, the, the desire to be a part of a, of a real, authentic, vibrant, growing, and healthy community of followers of Jesus, that desire is what God wants for us. How do I know that? Because in the same sermon where the apostle Peter proclaimed all of the things that I just read to you, he ended the sermon in verse 39 by saying, the promise of this, what you're seeing, is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Who's he talking about? He's talking about us. We are the children of the children of the children of the children of the original church. We are the ones that are afar off. So when God says, look, this is the picture of the church that I want to build and I want to grow, he then ends the sermon by saying, and also you all are invited. We're invited to be that. We're invited to be a part of that. And that's excites, that excites me because that's what I want to be a part of. I want to be a part of the real thing. I want to be like the original. So the question then is, how do we do that? How do we do that as a church? What's fascinating is the early church left a playbook for us. If you've ever been on a sports team or if you're involved in business, and sometimes there's a playbook. And the playbook is what gives you the strategies and the, and the culture and the policies and, the, and, the, and, the, and the, uh, the information that you need so that the whole organization or the whole team is pointed in the same direction, pursuing the same mission. In the book of Acts, we get the playbook of the early church. I'm going to read it to you because there's four things. Four things that the early church were doing that we are called to do. Acts chapter 2, verse 47. So we're just walking down the book of Acts. It says this. They, the early church, the original church, devoted themselves to four things. Number one, the apostles' teaching. Number two, fellowship. I'm going to talk more about that. That's more than potlucks. Fellowship. Number three, the breaking of bread. And number four, prayer. These were the four things that the original church was doing when they were experiencing exponential growth. We know that because in the, in the next verse, in verse 47, it says this. They were doing those four things, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So here's the, here's the premise of this whole series. If we want to experience what the original church experienced, we need to do what the original church did. It's the whole premise. If we want to experience the, the vibrancy and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives as a community, then we need to be doing what the early church was doing. We need to be devoted to the things that they were devoted to. We need to be di discipling ourselves in the things that they were discipling themselves in. We need to be pursuing the same vision that they were pursuing. We need to have the same kind of faith that they had. We need to do what they did. If I want to be successful financially, then I need to find somebody who's successfully fin uh, uh, who's successful financially, and I'm going to do what they did. If I want to be fit physically, I want to find somebody who's fit physically, and I'm going to do what they do. Right? If I want to have a good relationship, I'm going to go find some people in a good relationship and then I'm going to do what they do so that I can experience what they experience. So the scripture says these are the four things. This is the playbook that the early church, the original church was doing. So what I would love for us to do as a church is to run that play. I would love for us as one family church to say, listen, we're going to examine and study what the early church was doing when they were experiencing exponential growth and people were coming to the Lord and lives were being transformed and it was just, it was just a powerful sweep of the power of God on the planet and I want to 
devote ourselves to that. So how do we do that? How do we apply those four things from 33 AD to 2023 AD? I'm going to give you four. We're going to break it down. But number one is this. We're going to be committed to rigorous devotion to the truth of Scripture. This is the apostles' teaching. Fortunately, we have the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching is written down in Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrew, James, all, all of the New Testament epistles, that's the apostles' teaching. We're going to devote ourselves to, rigorously devote ourselves to the truth of the Scripture. We're not going to try to conform the Scripture to fit us. We're going to be transformed by the Scripture so that our lives reflect the truth of the Scripture. My daughter Eden, years ago, when she was like four or five, she had seen something on TV, like a parachutist, you know, a parachute, parachutist on TV. So she thought to herself, huh, I get it. So she got herself a blanket, and she went and climbed up on the picnic table in our backyard. And she thought she was going to jump off the picnic table with the blanket over her head and have a, just a nice, gentle, soft landing. She learned a lot about the, the law of gravity on that day. <laughs> she learned that the law of gravity does not bend towards you. She learned that you have to conform to the law of gravity. The law of gravity doesn't care what you think, doesn't care how old you are or how young you are or how smart you are or how not bright you are yet. It just, it just does what it does. When it comes to the law of God, the, the early church said, listen, we're going to allow our lives to be transformed by it. We're not going to try to make it conform to us. So what I want us to do, and I, I pray that we all do this, is that we open our hearts, we examine the word of God, and we go, hey, I want to learn what the Lord says is right and wrong for me and, and my life and my family and our church. And, and I want to conform my life to that. I, I want to be devoted to the apostles' teaching, right? I don't want to cherry pick the apostles' teaching. I want to be devoted to it. I want to follow the truth of the scripture. The truth is we can only experience, we cannot experience transformation and affirmation at the same time. We can't experience transformation now. Either we want the scripture to just affirm us in what we're doing, or we need to be transformed by the scripture so that, it look, so that our lives looks more like the scripture. And the, and the reality is this, and, and we all know this, with social media and with YouTube and with every you know, access to information at our fingertips, you will find, if you're looking hard enough, you will find a teacher who will agree with every single thing you think. And not only that, you will also find a community of people to come around you and go, we all agree with what you think, right? So the question is not whether we can find something that we agree with. The question is, are we actually pursuing the truth of the word of God? Because I want to be changed by that. I want my life to be transformed. I want my life to be transformed, the scripture says, into the image of Christ. And the only way to do that is to take the words of Christ seriously and to actually implement them into my life and to seek to be transformed and to grow by that. So we've developed um, a, a resource for you on our, on our website. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a scripture page. If you go on onefamilychurch.com, what I, really, what I really, our goal, my job, our team's job is to, is to serve you well, is to give you resources, is to provide everything that you need to be able to grow in the Lord. And one of the things that I just firmly believe and the scripture teaches us is that if we want to grow in the Lord, if we want to be like the original church, we've got to meditate on the word of God day and night. We've got to make it like, the, in Deuteronomy it says this, when you wake up, when you lie down. Have the word of God on your doorpost, have it on your gate, have it bound to your forehead, have it bound to your, to your hand. Always have the word of God at hand. And, and I thought about that this week a lot. And I said, you know what's always in my hand? 
I got an iPhone in my hand or an Android. Come on, somebody. We're not all people, all people. Um, but we've got, we've, got, we've got it in our hand the whole time. So, so we've actually got something bound to our hand at all times. Why don't we, why don't we open the Word of God and use that and, and start to study the Word of God every single day? Nourish it. Scripture says it's our daily bread. I can't eat on Sunday and then not eat the rest of the week. I will starve physically. And, and the reality is we will starve spiritually if we consume something now. We don't consume anything throughout the week. It is our daily bread. So that's, that's number one. I want to challenge us as a, as a church. Let's lean into the truth of God's word. Rigorous devotion to the truth of God. Number two, deep commitment to authentic community. That's fellowship. I used to think fellowship was just a churchy word that meant, you know, potluck dinners in the fellowship hall, right? And, and it's, it, is, it does mean that. That's part of it. That's part of it. But that's not all of it. The, the, word, the, the Greek word used there is the word koinonia. I think this is the first time it's used in the Bible. Koinonia. Koinonia means like deep unity, deep partnership. It's, it's leaning towards one another in a sacrificial, loving, generous, powerful way where our lives begin to interconnect in, in almost sort of a, a family type way where we go, look, I actually genuinely care for them. And they actually, actually gen, genuinely care for me. And I want what's best for them and they want what's best for me. That's, that's the picture in the New Testament of Koinonia. Jesus said, um, by this all men will know you're my disciples. By your what? Your love one for another. I spoke to a new member the other day, like two weeks ago, right over here. And um, she had been looking for a church. She and her, and her husband had been looking for a church. And, um, and I said, you know, what... What made you choose One Family Church? This is so fascinating what she said. She said, we were coming into the church. So they weren't even, in, they, were, they were coming into the Tivoli. We were coming into the church and we could tell by the way the people were interacting with one another on their way out that the love here was genuine. So I want you to get this. They had not even walked into the doors of the church yet. There had been no sermon. There had been no music. There had been no lights. There had been no... There, they were witnessing the love of Christ in the way people were exiting the building. Don't tell me that the sermon doesn't start in the parking lot. The sermon starts in the parking lot. The sermon starts at the office. The sermon starts at your school. The sermon starts in the marketplace. That's where the sermon begins. I got to just come up here and not mess it up. That's my job. Don't mess it up. Because the love of Christ is being proclaimed by our actions and our love one for another. In 360 AD, the emperor, uh, the Roman emperor, his name was Julius, he, uh, Julian, he, he was uh, not a believer. And he was upset because the Christians were exploding, because Christians were, were, were just expanding like crazy. So, so he wrote a letter to, um, to the high priest of, of Galatia. This is in 362 AD. And what, he's doing, what he says in the letter is fascinating. I'll read a little portion of it. He's telling the, the priests of Galatia, we need to be more like the Christians. This is what he writes. He says, why then do we, the Greek pagan priests, why then do we not observe how the kindness of Christians to strangers, their care for the burial of the dead, and the sobriety of their lifestyle has done the most to advance their cause? Why do we not notice this? Why do we not observe this, he says. Each of these things, I think, ought really, be to, ought really to be practiced by us. He said, food and provisions must be distributed from me to strangers and beggars. For it is disgraceful, he said, when no Jew is a beggar and the Christians support our poor in addition to their own. 
I mean, I just love this snapshot into the history of the early church because what the Roman emperor is saying is like, look how darn good these people are. And people are rushing into the, their homes and into the temples and into their churches. Why can't we be more like them? Rodney Stark, uh, the sociologist of religion, wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity. I just want to read you a portion of it. Here's what it says. It says, Christianity served as a revitalization movement that arose in response to the misery, chaos, fear, and brutality of life in the urban Greco-Roman world. It it revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and and kinds of social relationships able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent and ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics, fires, and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. In other words, the Christian church was koinoneing, it was fellowshipping, it was opening itself to not only love one another, but to love neighbors and to love enemies and to serve those in need and to serve the hungry and to take care of those that were sick and to reach out to the community and to be a source of light and hope and peace and truth. And that's what God wants for his church. And when we do that, when we experience that, when we live that way, then we get to experience what the early church experienced. We get to be like them. My challenge to us here at One Family Church is to lean into that individually and collectively in 2023. My hope is is that each and every one of us would find ways to serve. Our whole dream team is designed for people to serve in areas of their strength. Where are you gifted? Where are you passionate? Where has God placed a a desire for you to see a difference and make a difference? Join the dream team and serve somebody. If If you don't give, give. Be a part of pouring out. The question we have to ask ourselves as the church, and this is, this is the problem, I think, with the church across the nation. We have to ask ourselves, are we consumers or are we contributors? Are we there to gain or are we there to grow so that we can pour out to somebody else? I want One Family Church to be a place that just pours out, where we are givers, not takers, where we are a place that the community around us, whether they believe what we believe, has to scratch their head and go, man, I just can't find fault with them, right? I might not believe what they believe. I might not go along with their teaching and their doctrine, but man, they are transforming the city. That's my prayer for One Family Church. Are we going to get in the playbook and get in the game? I want us to be a place that pours out. I wish, I wish... I love the idea that the Roman emperor says, man, I just, these guys are just too good. I would love for people that hate Christianity to go, man, what is the matter with us? We should be more like them. Amen, somebody. All right, number three, shared meals. Shared meals. Now I've got your attention. They were devoted to the breaking, the breaking of bread. We underestimate the power of the table. We really do. When you eat across a table with somebody, when you break bread with somebody, something transformative happens there. Um, Yesterday, Barry and I got on the phone. Uh, Barry was leading um, a life group leader training, and um, and Adrian Hubanks was 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 helping him lead the training. And um, they had, I think, there's a picture of them. They had 19 new life group leader trainees show up at this training yesterday, and and all of these trainees. This is just one 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 training session. There's another one on Saturday and then there's another one after that. 
What all of these folks were, were wanting to develop is this ability to invite people into their home or into a coffee shop or you know, into a, a space to eat together, to break bread together, to pray together, to read scripture together, and to actually experience life together. That's what Life Groups is about. It's about actually fellowship, real fellowship. Not just, you know, food, fun, and fellowship at the, at the you know, family picnic, which is good, which is part of it, right? But actually breaking bread and, and, and serving one another, caring for one another. Look, look how it describes um, in Acts 2.47 what they were doing. It says, they, they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. This was a key component of the early church. I read a study this week from, uh, from uh, a Harvard University. They performed a study about longevity and about health, long-term health and longevity. Here's what they said. They said close relationships, close relationships, so an interconnected network of, of people loving and caring for each other. Close relationships protect people from life's discontents, help to delay mental and physical decline, and are better predictors of long and happy lives than social class, IQ, or even genes. One of the researchers put it like this. He said, when we gathered together everything we know about the participants at age 50, it wasn't their middle-aged cholesterol levels that predicted how, how they were going to grow old. It was the quality of their relationships. The people who experienced healthy relationships at age 50 were the healthiest at age 80. In 33 AD, the Christian community already knew this. They said, we want to be a place where we come together, we have real relationships, we're real family, we break bread together, we fellowship together, we're part of a team together, we're on mission together, we're focused together, we're going to live this thing out. And that's what I pray for us at One Family Church. When we launch life groups in February, my prayer is that every single one of us would say, okay, I'm going to find a group and I'm going to connect with some people because I don't want to be isolated and alone anymore. I want to be a part of real community, real friendship, real fellowship, real koinonia, breaking bread with other believers. Amen. Number four, last one, intimate communion with God. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted, totally devoted to prayer. What those who know me well, like my staff and my friends and my family, one thing that they know about me is something that I for a long time tried to deny, which is I have a tendency to run out of gas when I'm driving. It is not something I'm proud of because I feel like as a man, you should just not run out of gas. You should change the oil and fix the filters. But I run out of gas pretty frequently, people. It's a big admission for me. I'm going to come to the altar today. I run out of gas on vacation. I run out of gas in town. I run out of gas. I've drifted to my house before. I've run out of gas on Del Mar and drifted all the way to my house. I drifted to my house one time. Kevin Cahill can tell you that. I drifted to my house down Midland, took a ride on Stanford, and slid up in my driveway, pulled that emergency brake. Nobody knew. I didn't have to tell anybody that one. One time, my wife and I were in an argument. And I left the house before we had resolved the argument. I was upset. I got in my car. I was driving to some event or whatever. I can't remember where I was going. I ran out of gas on Lindbergh Boulevard. And I'm like, I can't call my wife. Because then she automatically wins the argument, right? <laughs> so if you saw me walking up north on Lindbergh a couple years ago with a gas can. So 
So this happens to me pretty frequently. And the reason, there's two reasons. One is busyness and distraction. I don't like to stop for gas, even when I notice the gas tank is low. Because I got places to go, I got people to meet, I got things to do. And I just don't want to stop and fill up the gas tank. I just don't want to. I don't like doing that. It's not something I'm into. I don't like it. The other thing that happens is distraction. Sometimes I don't notice. That's the worst. Because when you don't notice, what happens is, if you've never had this happen, the gas pedal just goes soft under you. You're just driving along, it just goes soft. It's like, nope, yep, what you gonna do now? That's what happens. And a couple months ago, maybe a month ago, I was talking to the staff because the Lord put it on my heart and said, that's an analogy for your spiritual life. He said, you, you like to always go do, you got people to meet, you got things to do, you got places to go. But if you don't stop and commune with me, if you don't fill up your spiritual tank, then one of two things happens. Either you notice how low it is, suddenly you start going, oh, I got to get, you know, and then you're driving frantically to find a, to, to find a gas station, which I did with my kids. I'm also in one of the carpool people. I, I, I almost ran out of gas with the carpool of kids in the car. I'm like, too far, Lord, too far. So, so he said, either you, you need to, you, you either need to just take time and, and continually fill up with me, or you're just going to keep running out of gas. There'll be a time where you just run along spiritually and you just, oh man, there's, I got no power, right? And then you got to go fill up. He said, let me show you a better way. Instead of only stopping when it's low, why don't you fill up with me every day so that you just stay full? And then spiritually, spiritually, it's even different from gas. He says, actually, why don't you fill up to the point where you're overflowing? So that it's not just you that is experiencing the power of my spirit, but it's pouring out over you onto the people that you meet. It's pouring onto your family, it's pouring onto your church, it's pouring onto your school, it's pouring out of you. Out of your belly flows rivers of living water. And he was speaking of the spirit. He said, so I don't, really, I don't really want you to run around and do everything and then almost run out and then have to fill up. He said, I want you to fill up with me every day. I want to challenge us, church. If we want to experience the truth and the power, the joy of the Spirit, we need to, we need to stop and fill up. We got to stop doing sometimes. We got to stop running sometimes. We got to stop being distracted Stop being busy as the church. We got to go, God, I, I just need to fill up with you. Every morning, every night, Lord, I just want to fill up with you. My encouragement, I'm, I'm encouraged by this passage because the playbook of the early church is not rocket science. It's four things. It's devotion to the apostles' teaching, devotion to fellowship, right? True unity, partnership with one another. Devotion to breaking of bread and devotion to prayer. That's all they did. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. We can do those four things. We can do those four things. That's not out there. That's not like crazy. We, we can actually do that. We can do that. And what I believe is going to happen as we do that, as the church, is I believe that the people out in the community, people that don't have anything to do with one family church and maybe don't have anything to do with the church at all and maybe have seen the demographic drift of the church and said you know I'm not I'm just that's not even appealing to me what I believe is that when we lean into these practices we run this play we run this playbook right what's gonna happen is the community is gonna say well let me just see what's going on in there and the community is gonna move to the crowd 
and they're going to come into our spaces here at the Tivoli and at Shaw and online. And they're going to come in. They're going to say, let me, let me see what's going on. And then they're going to experience the love that they see in you. And they're going to move from, from the crowd to becoming followers of Jesus. They're going to, they're, they're going to become Christians. They're going to say, I'm going to put my faith in Jesus because I want to be a part of this community. I want to be what they are. I want to serve the God they serve. And then I believe what's going to happen is they're going to move from Christians, which is I put my faith in Jesus, to being committed. Committed means they're going to, they're going to serve and they're going to give and they're going to fellowship and they're going to be a part of what it means to expand the mission of Jesus. And, that, and that's not the end of it. Because once they're committed, they're going to discover, you know what, actually, this isn't about me. And they're going to be commissioned to go back out to the community and to serve those who are far away, to serve those who are far off. And over time, what I believe will happen is when we lean into this, we'll start to see that the version of the church in 2023 looks like the original, sounds like the original, lives like the original. And I know that, that, the, that the end is going to be greater than the beginning. But we know that we're, we're, we're the head, we're not the tail. We, we know that at the very end, when we're all standing before the throne, it's going to be every nation, tribe, and tongue. So we see the picture at the very end. And I believe that we get to be a part of that. We get to be a part of what God is doing. We get to be a part of the picture. So the question I have for you today, I'm closing with this. What step do you want to take? What step are you willing to take to be a part of that movement? If you're not a follower of Jesus today, I would invite you to put your faith in Jesus, to put your trust in Him. You can still ask Him all kinds of questions after you believe in Him. You don't have to have everything ironed out. You can commit and say, I'm going to follow Jesus and I still have a lot to figure out. But I want to invite you to follow Jesus. There was a day in my life when I said, I'm going to, you know what, I put my trust in Him. His death, His burial, His resurrection, I want to follow Him. Transform my life. Absolutely change my life. Fundamentally change my life. I want to invite you to experience that. If perhaps you are a Christian, but you're not committed. You, your faith is in Jesus, but you're not living it out. You're not committed with your life, and you're not committed with your church, and you're not committed, you're not a member, or you're not, you're not involved in groups, or you don't serve, or you don't give. My, my challenge to you is make a choice, make a decision. Take a step. Take a step towards what it means to do the real thing. Don't be a consumer. Be a contributor. Be somebody who pours out. Right? If you're committed, my, my challenge to you is where, is where out there is God calling you? Because the, the more we, the closer we get to Christ, the more outward facing we become. The more we start to look at those who are far off and we go, hey, the Lord is for you too. Right? Through our words, through our actions. So what step are you willing to take? Because I believe in my heart of hearts, I genuinely believe this, that the sequel, the version of the church in this day and age is going to be as good, as powerful, as glorious as the original. And I want to be a part of that. Let's pray. God, you're so good to us. We see this picture that you've placed before us as a church. And we want to look like that. We want to be like that. We want to follow you in the way you've called us to follow you. We want to live the lives that you've called us to live. We don't want to play church. We want to be the church, the real thing, the original. We want to experience the life-transforming power of your spirit in our lives. We want to rigorously devote ourselves to your word, to be transformed by it. We want to have real, authentic community, fellowship with other believers and with those who are far away. 
We want to break bread as a family. We want to spend time in your word together, in each other's homes, praising God. We want to spend time in, in scripture together, spend time in your word together, Lord God. And we want to be intimate with you. We want to be devoted to pure, true intimacy with you, where we're speaking to you and you're speaking to us and we're in communion with our Father who loves us. I pray, Lord God, that you would give us strength this week to take whatever steps you're calling us to take to move closer, to move deeper into what it means to follow you. Transform us. Change us, Lord God. I pray that we would do this in love. We would follow Christ in love by the power of the Spirit to the glory of the Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said...